Incoming transmission. The Klingon word of the day is yacht. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beam me up. Resistance is futile. They're long and prosperous. Welcome to the Computer Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. His obsession with the ships of the fleet has manifested itself in a big, big way, just on a small scale. Lego his Legos from Omaha, Nebraska. It's Chris Ames! Yay! Yay, Muppet Hands! (laughs) (laughs) How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? Thank oh. you so much for having me on. I feel like we've been trading Instagram messages for, oh gosh, well over a year now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so great to finally be here. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you on. Yes, I am a, I'm a big, big fan of, of your work. Uh, I, I, it, so do you prefer the title Lego Artisan? Is that... I would say, well, yes, because it sounds bougie and I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I think the technical term would be builder. Okay. There's also part of the, the name of my brand is Mini Trek Mocks. And the mock part is stands for my own creation. And that's this idea that there are these builders and they put stuff together that is totally of their own design. Man, that's, so that's awesome. Yeah. So that's where that acronym comes from okay because i was going to ask about that i wanted to know where the name came from but that makes that makes so much sense i growing up i had a random box of and cobbled together from legos god knows where we got them but it was always uh yeah i've i've talked about in my stand-up act uh i'm the youngest of three boys my two older brothers are both in mensa so uh wow it was always you know, me going, Hey, look, I made a cross. And my brother's yeah. being like, look, we made the Biltmore estate. And I'm like, <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> but uh, you, you've done some, first of all, to do, to do anything Star Trek in a medium that is not, uh, that is not known for having Star Trek stuff is impressive enough. Thank you. But you are creating, and I mean, and we will obviously plug your website and 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 everything so people can actually go see and purchase your work. But the the thing that is astounding to me is how you've not only created the ships of Starfleet, like all of them, um, or or a good number of them, maybe not yep. all of them, but a, a really solid number of them with no directions in incredible detail and they look good enough to display like it's it's you know every anytime i made something with legos it was just kind of like oh it's a glob of something but (laughs) these these look these look like they could be straight from the lego like official lego when i initially stumbled across your your account on instagram 
as I was setting things up again, we we've been in contact probably since the show started. Yeah. Um, initially I thought you were part of the Lego company. Oh my gosh. Thank and you. It, it's, I mean, the quality is such that it's like, Oh, he must work for Lego. Not the case. I mean, right. No, I, I can't lie and say that that's not the dream. Cause it definitely is. Um, <laughs> I'm blushing a lot. Thank you. That was very sweet of you. Um, it really, it started in about 2016 and I just had this idea that like, wow, it would be really cool if I had like the original enterprise in Lego form that was small, that wasn't, you know, overwhelming. Can, could I make it so small and still get all the shaping right and the proportions? So that that's started a, off. That's as, a tall order. Yes, because as, <laughs> uh, you know, as we both know, it's an iconic design. It's incredibly simplistic. It's mostly round shapes um, with very sort of tight lines. And it's it has a sleekness to it. They even know it ended up being one of the tallest ships in the history of the franchise. It's still incredibly sleek. And so once I found a couple of those key pieces that I, I felt made it work, it started to come together. And then I'm like, well, if I'm going to do one enterprise, I should do all of them, right? I mean, that's a natural place to start. Of it's like, well, if I do all the enterprises, I got to do Deep Space Nine. And it started snowballing from there. And then I really set it aside as anything more than just a exercise. And am I capable as a fan of Lego and Star Trek of doing this? And interestingly, in 2020, I ended up uh, being a part of a large layoff at my company about 3,500 people ended up uh, being asked to exit. And so I had a lot of time on my hands (laughs) and (laughs) I was like, well, I've never physically built these models. I just built them in a software. So can I do it better? Can I actually get pieces and build this collection for myself? And I started off with 14 ships and I'm now at 43. Um, So it really, (laughs) it escalated from there. Um, And I wanted to make them as accurate as possible. So I'm looking at every piece of reference material I can get my hands on Yeah, and really going pixel by pixel and seeing, okay, if these nacelles are 42 pixels wide, they're this many long so that you basically come up with a a Lego stud conversion, right? If they're one stud wide, they have to be 17 studs long or whatever it is. Yeah, And that's how you end up getting the proportions correct. and I also wanted to make instructions that were easy to follow because a lot of times when you build um, these mock creations from Lego designers, the instructions are a little spotty. They're, they're mm. challenging. And I wanted this to be something that felt like a real Lego set. Um, and so I'm glad that that uh, appeared to work based on your feedback, which I appreciate. And I, uh, I really just, if it makes me happy, I thought, well, as a fan of Lego and Star Trek, it might make other people happy. So oh, let's yeah. let's put it out there. Yeah, I mean, there's been there's been no shortage of people who have also been either part of the great layoff or the great resignation. Um, right. Who, yeah, you know, finding themselves with uh, an immense amount of time on their hands, uh, but not enough depression to start a podcast. There um, it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I share in that. There's nothing like a healthy dose of life circumstances, some mental health issues to go like, let's fixate on this for a little bit too long. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I, uh, I probably could have started this podcast earlier, um, but I was in the midst of psychoanalyzing all four of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Here's the thing. Ask me why. Tell me why. 
I have no idea. No <laughs> idea why I did that. Not a clue. Yeah. And, and, and that's okay. I mean, as, as like my family and um, my significant other can attest, like I sat up late till three in the morning looking at a, a, a digital image of like the jellyfish from the 2009 Star Trek movie saying, yes. how can I use this dinosaur tail to make it look like these fins? And why isn't this working? Um, oh, and, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's that was the fun part for me is trying to take what Lego has made this piece originally for and putting it in a different context. Um, so it's that, so it's like collage. Yeah, there there are some ships where you know uh, if you're super familiar with Star Trek vessels, you have like the Excelsior, and if you can build the Excelsior, you can probably figure out the Enterprise B because they're basically the same ship with different colors and a little bit of refitting. Right. And then there's a ship like the Jellyfish or a ship like the Stargazer from Star Trek Picard that it really feels more like sculpture in a way that it's not, it doesn't quite make sense in your mind how to get these pieces to fit together. But once it does it, you know, once you lock in those proportions and you look at it from the different angles and it's like, well, I remember that iconic shot from that one episode and it looks just like that. So I think I did this right. Um, That that's when it, it becomes so satisfying. Man, that's that's really impressive. I, it's again, I I can't I can't hype it enough. The attention to detail is just staggering. Especially like we've we've all seen those big you know stormtrooper statues or you know the one of the Hulk at the Lego store or yep. something like. And they're they're <laughs> massive, and it's kind of like oh wow, they did it all out of Legos. And yeah, that's a lot of attention to detail and a lot of you know time and sculpting the whole thing. But like to get something that it's they're not big they're how how big how big is your biggest ship my biggest ship would be actually the the stargazer from star trek picard from the season two premiere and that's probably 10 inches wow and that's that's like by far the biggest one and most of them average anywhere from uh 90 to 120 pieces per ship um and it the size of it really was born out of practicality because mm. I could not pick five ships to build custom. It was like, if I'm going to do these, I want all of them. And I don't have a 30 bedroom house to display <laughs> all of these, you know, foot long representations of Star Trek vessels. So right. I got to make them really small and they're not in scale. I get that question a lot. You know, why is the runabout the same size as, you know, the USS Voyager? Of um, and that I really took from the Eagle Moss Star Trek collection, um, which is these beautiful die cast representations of the ships and none of it is in scale, but they just kind of all are about like the size of your fist almost. Nice. And there's something about sort of paring it down to what is the smallest uh, scale that I can make this and still maintain the silhouette and the detail. Um, and that that's really my goal for every ship. How small can I make it? Man, that's awesome. Let me, so let's, let's, Let's rewind a little bit and let okay. me ask you what what passion, what love came first, Star Trek or Legos? Ooh, I'm going to have to say Star Trek. Okay. I have a very clear memory of being three or four. And my dad, um, we had discovered that the Sci Fi Channel was airing all of the original series episodes in order. And nice. before each episode, Leonard Nimoy would give like three to five minutes on the production, the storyline or what that episode meant to fans. And so cool. it was like a nice, like curated journey through the original series. Sweet. And so he 
taped all of that on VHS, got it organized and labeled and everything. Uh, this was before like home video was really like a thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it was, but it was insanely expensive. And so we just sat down and started with uh, the, uh, the man trap with the salt creature and watched all of them. Uh, and then I got into the movies and then I started getting the Star Trek communicator magazines and I started getting the books and it just sort of snowballed from there. And not, you know, it, it was not too soon after that. I was like a full fledged Trekkie. I just absolutely loved it. Nice. Have you, yeah. have you messed around with any, uh, with any cosplay or anything like that? You know, a little bit. I, uh, I've been to a couple conventions. My dad and I went and that, that was just kind of a bizarre experience. It's not, it was never something I shared a lot, like in school, it was just not, not a secret, but you know, I was more focused on activities and academia and it was like, well, once I get home, I'm going to watch Star Trek and probably play with Legos or, you know, start shooting my mom with my phaser or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, going to conventions, you know, we'd, we'd get some uniforms on and get some props and it, it just like, it's hard to not do it because everything is so cool. Yeah. Uniforms are cool. The props are cool. Like it just, it, it, it makes too much sense. Do you have, do you have a favorite Trek uniform? Oh, okay. I have to say the strange new worlds um, take on the original series uniform is, is uh, amazing. They're pretty dope. Um, I, I also like pretty much everything from the Kelvin timeline. Um, Cause that's yeah. like, that's really peak star Trek for me because in 2009 I was just entering high school. And so that's right when I could start like assimilating uh, to coin a term, assimilating uh, a bunch of media for this new movie coming out. And so, you know, I was like saving production photos on my laptop and like, you know, really just getting into it. And so yeah. I, Kel Kelvin uniforms, strange new world uniforms, the first contact with the gray on top, all black. Those are very dope. Those are probably yeah. my three favorite. Yeah. What about you? Uh, you know, I think, um, well, cause you know, my experience was, uh, I'm a little bit older than you. Um, but I wasn't going to say anything. No, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, the beard makes me look as old as time. Uh, but no, it's wisdom. It's wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> nice save. Checks in the mail, sir. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. Uh, I think because uh, my earliest memories were actually of TNG, um, and so I kind of grew up with the the jumpsuit. Uh, yes. As, uh, yep. You know, as kind of the standard, and it wasn't until I started exploring um, Enterprise uh, in. I think I found Enterprise in 2006 uh, while I was working in law enforcement and okay. my uniform uh, had a lot of pockets. And when I started watching, because I was working third shift, so I would come home at eight, nine in the morning and what I would watch to wind down was star trek enterprise and yeah that's that's so cool yeah i stumbled across it and it was just kind of like oh this is early on yep it's jumps they're back to jumpsuits but they're more like cut co their coveralls it's well they're much more practical yeah it was like stylized and, coveralls with pockets I, i'm like ironically it's so funny we're talking about this because i'm watching this episode in preparation for the podcast and there is a scene no spoilers where their archer requests 
that an alien, yeah. <laughs> uh, a member of an alien race gets something out of his pocket. I don't think that has ever happened in Star Trek until that scene. Exactly. Yeah. There was 45 years of history until somebody <laughs> was like, we should use pockets. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it, it was so, it was so much fun to see that approach to Star Trek mm-hmm. in Yes, their uniforms have pockets. The ship is a step above a submarine. It's yep. basically a floating submarine. And I really dug that of like red alert, that hasn't been invented yet. Like yes. <laughs> the prime tra- directive is like a good thought. Yeah, you know? well, yeah, like, what prime directive? Yeah, exactly. Right. There yeah, it's I've made the I've made the joke that uh, Starfleet was basically in a storefront uh, next to Dollar General and probably a sun, Subway sandwich shop. Oh, that is so funny. I never thought about that. That's yeah. so true, though. Yeah, it's it's Admiral Forrest in one office, just like right. All right, Arch- Archer, have fun. Yeah. <laughs> How are our four ships doing? Good. Yeah. Good. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. It's because you know once they once that first one was leaving space dock, you know, Forrest just leaned over to them and was like we're just going to wait and see what breaks and then, yeah. And, and we'll fix, and then we'll, we'll go from there. He'll be fine. We, They'll be fine. We just, They'll be fine. Yeah. Do, should we just keep talking about Jupiter? I don't know what <laughs> to do now. So stuff should be happening on Jupiter, but I don't know if it is or not. <laughs> oh man. So uh, this, this probably wasn't your first viewing of an enterprise episode, was it? No. So okay. <laughs> enter, enterprise in a lot of ways is like my Star Trek because I was at the age, it came out in 2001. I was eight, I was eight, nine. And so this was the first time I got to sit down every single week, make an appointment viewing for myself and watch Star Trek. Oh, wow. Um, Cool. Yes, which I I know dates me, but uh... no, I should have been talking to you from the beginning. I've had all these people <laughs> on who are like, it's TOS or bust. I'm like, okay, we get it. No, so I, <laughs> I I hadn't seen Deep Space Nine. I hadn't seen Voyager. I'd really just seen TOS, TNG, the films, and then Enterprise came on. And so I have a lot of nostalgia and just like a big battery for Enterprise because to me this is what I grew up on. And so I have an appreciation of it being like my franchise that I really soaked in. Like I had the art asylum, like the action figures, the, the NX-01, the, the phase pistol, not yeah. the phaser, the phase pistol, the, mm-hmm. you know? And so I really bought in to this show. And I think it in a really serendipitous way is funny that this is telling the sort of the the beginning of Starfleet, the beginning of exploration, and I'm starting my initial journey into Star Trek. And so I sort of got to take this parallel, you know, journey with the show as it started to learn more about the universe. I was learning more about the Star Trek universe. And yeah. so it just, it really worked out that way. Oh man, that's so great. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm so happy that somebody is actually like, I remember this and I remember it fondly. Yeah. <laughs> that seems to, well, let me ask you, you've, you've been in, you've been a Trek fan for uh, uh, long enough. Have you experienced people who are just like, Oh, enterprise, that's the one that sucks. Right. Have you, have you dealt with that? Uni- a lot? Unequivocally, that's the reaction I get. Right? And it is, it is really, <laughs> I remember being at conventions and 
I was standing in line. My dad and I were just, we were doing probably like a crew draft, right? Of like, if you could pick any science officer, like, cause that's what you do at a Star Trek convention while you're standing in line. Of course, right? of course. And uh, somebody in front of me, I mentioned, um, I was like communications officer, Hoshi. I mean, she seemed to be the only one that could replace a universal translator. That was my argument. Right. And the guy in front of me acted like I just kidnapped his family or something. Like he was so offended that I would possibly consider Hoshi to be better than Uhura or I guess that's, uh, do we have other communications officer? Can you count Worf on TNG as a communications officer? Cause he answered hails. See, I always, th- I always thought data was more ops, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would no, say that, pro- that would make sense. Data and probably, well, Harry Kim, the forever ensign. Yep. Oh man. Yeah. Mo- yeah. Moment of silence for Harry Kim's mm. very empty <laughs> collar with one pip on it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so anyway, we were getting into this discussion and, you know, basically the, this guy was dunking on enterprise and, you know, I get it. You have now intimately gone through the first two seasons, which ha- is a very mixed bag. Like I watched it in real time. I watched it on DVDs. I watched it on Blu-rays. I've seen the whole thing probably four or five times. And wow. yeah, and I, I'm i really, you know, expressing how full my social calendar is right now. I get that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it really wasn't until <clears throat> the end of season two that I felt like they had this really interesting idea of let's do a, a 9-11 parallel and let's make it a season long arc and now that we're living in this time of serialized Star Trek with Picard and, and Discovery, yep. I think Enterprise deserves more love because for for my money, thank you for my for my money, Enterprise is doing a season long arc better than Discovery and Picard, and I like Ooh. both of those. I like both of those two shows very much because okay. they're Star Trek, and I like Star Trek. However, they maintained the episodic nature of it really until this episode. And I, that's why I like this episode so much. And I feel like it is a, uh, it really is that first domino to fall for the remaining rest of the season where it becomes heavily serialized. Yeah. Um, but I, there are several episodes, um, you know, hatchery similitude North star where they're just these like, you know, interesting ideas that are sort of tied to this larger picture, but for the most part, they're they're keeping in the episodic um you know legacy of star trek which i appreciated yeah i uh gosh man you 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 hit you hit so many nails on the head just, just <laughs> oh, this is so great yeah with uh with everything leading up to this very episode it's it's all been the the need for a previously on enterprise you know <laughs> yes. definitely uh definitely comes to the forefront in season three and it's get it's getting harder for me to it's getting harder for me to find guests because i'm like okay we're gonna talk <laughs> about this episode so you're gonna need to watch from <laughs> yes okay from the so... season two finale to right. Now. <laughs> <laughs> right um but yeah it's 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 really come to center stage the idea that yeah i mean because you know it kicked off right after 9 11 and i i've i've told myself and my executive producer my wife it's like you know what i'm gonna stop mentioning the 9 11 thing i can't sorry um it's such an important thing yes and it you you hit it on two fronts one it's just the context of the television landscape 
that they were trying to produce a show in. And then it's, well, not only are we going to do that, we're also going to really tell a parallel story and do what I think Star Trek has always done best, and that is take modern political socioeconomic events and turn them into incredible sci-fi stories. And you, uh, I think a, a couple of episodes ago now, had a nice debate about Star Trek versus Star Wars, which I'm a, I'm a fan of both. I think they both have their merits. Absolutely. Um, but that is one area where I think Star Trek far exceeds Star Wars, and that is taking these really big ideas and by putting them in a different context helps you understand them better, helps maybe an opponent of that idea understand it in a different way. And I think encourages more friendly debate that feels less personal because you're talking about a dude with ridges on his head versus a dude with spots. And that is somehow easier to understand for us. Yeah. You know, in taking away, you know, it's, it's so wild to think that adding details to someone's face actually helps make that face more iconic in that we can either identify with or identify someone else as that particular alien yes. race and and then that allows us to discuss these very heavy things of torture and uh mm -hmm. wartime strategy and t and tactics like this is stuff that i mean because prior to 9-11 i think the biggest thing that we as a country you know were concerned about other than like y2k was like desert storm the cold war right you know maybe i mean yeah vietnam for sure that was the set that was late 60s into the 70s like there hadn't really i don't think there was a i mean i'm sure the internet will let me know if i'm wrong but <laughs> uh you know there wasn't really a big thing that took center stage prime time spotlight it happened on the today show like right matt lauer was like what was that <laughs> like yeah oh, yeah yeah so you know for 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 this for start i, I wish i actually kind of wish they had scrapped season one and two <laughs> and just <laughs> and maybe done a mini series instead of a pilot two-parter have it be a mini series oh i like that then, idea yeah and get right into it and i've said i've said before you know i don't feel that i don't feel that archer as a character was the best choice as a mm. diplomatic representative totally Earth. agree with you on that um and i think they should have made us go with him on that journey to captaincy a little bit more i've always said like Look, I don't get me wrong. I love Travis Mayweather. Uh, tra I've gone on record multiple times as saying Travis is my guy. Like, yeah, you, you talk phenomenal about character, uh, like painfully underused yes. for what an incredible story and background he has. Yes, and yeah. I've I've said it, it would actually make more sense, especially seeing Archer as a child in the pilot episode, piloting that little model. It would have made more sense to see him um, as the pilot of the NX01 under captain forest and then have something happen where captain forest is either injured or killed and now archer has to assume command i have never thought about that but that is a fascinating idea that i really like and i you know <laughs> when they're on earth and they don't have the nx one they have a couple of these smaller auxiliary ships that you know we don't see much of throughout enterprise but right. we know that there's like a couple warp two warp three you know solar system ships what does it mean to be the captain of the NX-01 before Broken Bow? 
like I, I assume he was given command and he had the fourth pip on his uniform. Literally, what what did that mean? Yeah, because the the impetus for that entire for all of Enterprise is this, um, you know, interspecies conflict in the pilot. Mm. And I'm trying to think back to Broken Bone, remember what the original purpose of of Enterprise was going to be or what the timeline was. Well, it was in short, it was, of course, exploration, scientific, blah, blah, blah. Right. But uh, the big thing was returning this Klingon to his home world. That was that was the first mission. Yes. And so they didn't have five year missions. They didn't have, you know, they had the Vulcans breathing down their necks about whether or not they should even be going out into space, which I I thought that was a brilliant idea to sort of sprinkle that in throughout the entire series that this like, yes, the Vulcans gave us first contact, but that came with a whole lot of baggage um, that, you know, the, the very rosy scene in first contact, you know, this is not even a hundred years after that. Um, And you talk about a seismic change in the the history of our planet as a result. Oh, for sure. Um, But no, that's a really interesting idea. And I, there's a great podcast. um, It's the Starfleet Leadership Podcast. I and, think I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. Je- Jeff Aiken uh, hosts that. Yep. And I, I I work in uh, a corporate environment. I have a degree in economics and marketing. And so the idea that like, you know, I, I can learn leadership lessons from Star Trek episodes. Absolutely. I'm going to tune in. And he dunks on Archer regularly. And it's not, it's not the typical enterprise dunking because he, like us, has an appreciation for, for enterprise. But it is like he continues to make poor leadership and captaincy decisions. And a lot of it is because nobody's ever done this before. He has no model for what a captain should be or what kinds of decisions he should be making. Right. And he is the representative of his entire race, Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, bonkers. That's like a, that. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's so much pressure. And even in this episode, we see how his volatility and lack of experience and just um, uneasiness really leads to some interesting decisions that propel the plot forward. And it's not the first time in season three, you sort of go, don't know if I would have done that, or if he should have done that, or if Kirk or Picard would have done that, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think that's another interesting thing about Enterprise is you know, the, the Berman era of Star Trek, as it were, where you have, you know, TNG, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise all within this like 20 year period uh, without any breaks. And you sort of, (laughs) it it would be a very difficult thing to try to break that formula because it had worked so well. You have hundreds of episodes of television um, with really similar lighting, camera angles, dialogue, music, it's like a, a, a very distinct language that is Star Trek of the of the 90s. And to try to sort of keep a lot of those elements, but make it different was mm. must have been really challenging. And I think one of those came out continually in Archer as a character being just not quite the captain that we have come to expect to see in a Star Trek series. So we've seen this character of Archer and... You know, it is, especially in season one and two, it's painfully obvious that he's little more than a pilot. And I, I, it makes me come back to, and again, 20 years after the fact, there's nothing we can do about it now. Right. But I think they were so focused on getting Scott Bakula 
who already had so much sci-fi pop culture cred. Yes. Well, he's our new captain. Let's get him in that chair. Let's get him captaining. Like, okay, that writing better support it. And didn't really for the most, you know, more, not nearly enough. Uh Exactly. No, exactly. And that like, just what you described is so different than any other Star Trek captain just right off the bat. Yeah. And because of that, the show needed to be different and they didn't make it different until season three. Yeah. And then you get season four, which introduced a completely new style of storytelling for Star Trek, which is let's tell basically a couple of movies back to back in these three episode arcs. And it's universally praised as being the best era of enterprise are, are those little chunks. Um, where Archer is not necessarily the most important character or the iconic captain figure um, like Janeway, Cisco, Picard, and, and Kirk were, were treated, where it's really their show and everybody else is just kind of, you know, ancillary characters with mm-hmm. the exception of a few episodes. Yeah. Um, so, no, I, I totally agree with you that it, if they were going to make such a change and have this, you know, ideal, quote unquote, ideal casting choice for Archer, the show needed to be more different and not necessarily follow that same formula that we've seen before. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Cause I mean, in looking at it, I don't think we even really get a sense of the history of not just the captaincy of the enterprise, but a history to any of the captains until Picard. It's he's yeah. the first one who kind of comes in and is like, Oh, you were the captain of the stargazer. And, you know, Will comes in and while Picard is sitting in that broom closet of a, <laughs> of a ready room and encounter yes. far point. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you get a sense of like, okay, but Picard is prickly at best uh, yeah. in that, in that pilot. And Will comes with this, you know, he is, he is sharp. He is, he is the man. He's the man with the, on the, on the mission. And he's, gonna, yeah, he's, yeah. He's very much the Kirk figure in yeah. those early seasons well, where that's he what I, that's what i've always said is like you know when we did when we did our draft episode when we did our fantasy draft episode here on the show that's why i chose Riker as my captain i was like he's yeah kind of the perfect blend of kirk and picard now i don't know that the fans at large agreed with me but <laughs> <laughs> but that's my choice and i stuck with it no i i, I really understand that choice and i that's a, that was a huge separating factor for next gen right off the bat was like, they sort of proved through Picard's pedigree that he not only deserved to be a captain, but he deserved to be the captain of the flagship. Yeah. And because of that, he brought on undoubtedly the best of Starfleet. Yeah. It's, you know, I, like I think of, I think of Superman and a lot, you know, a lot of like hardcore fans are just like, he's too powerful it's very easy to say that about the TNG cast of characters of just like, you've got this, there's somebody it's, it is the Swiss army knife of, of Starfleet crews. Like you've got somebody who can do everything. Seemingly really true. Yeah. And And you're, and you're in the most ideal uh, situation. If you are serving in Starfleet, you're on the flagship. Yeah. You sort of have, plot protection from a production standpoint that like, you know, we know if you're watching a season four, episode 10 um, edition of next gen, like the enterprise isn't going to blow up like that. It's just not like, we know that because we've seen it, but we also could kind of figure that watching it. Yeah. Um, But no, you're, you're totally right. And I think enterprise struggled with this like motley crew idea, but Mm. also making them capable enough to be the only 
support out there. They, they were the only ship. Yeah. They were a lot of times the only party interested in maintaining um, this idealistic view of how species could connect with each other. Yep. And they just never quite got there. We, you know, Travis is a great example. He has one of the most fleshed out storylines in terms of background characters of the entire bridge crew. Mm -hmm. And yet everybody is disappointed with him as a character because he never got the screen time. He never got the responsibility. He never, you know, was influential on the plot with ironically the exception of our episode in, in a way. Um, but it, it was such a struggle to marry so many of these production challenges, the challenges of just being the fourth series in this very long run of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And they, until they brought on new blood in season three and season four from a production standpoint, I feel like it just, it, it was going to struggle. Yeah. And it was launching a brand new network and that had its own, you know, series of challenges. And it was, in a very awkward time slot. I remember it was changing and it was like after a reality show and it, all kinds of things made Enterprise uh, the the really odd child of this Star Trek show family. Very much, very much. And, you know, going back to uh, Archer and him as a character and how he has behaved over the past few episodes, certainly this entire season, we see this, mm-hmm. this man who let's let's lay all the cards on the table this man who was not the best choice for captain right who is now put in a situation where he's having to defend earth from this attack um which they've already had one attack which killed millions Mm -hmm. and and his best friend's sister so it's personal and now he's gone from not the best choice for captain to the captain who's not making the best choices and uh we see him in this very desperate uh this very desperate state and you know cream rises to the top and i think archer is more lucky than (laughs) he's more lucky than skilled (laughs) well Um, and so much of this season has been about whether or not archer's convictions and the proof of you know, humanity will not be responsible for causing the extinction of the Zindi. Like that, that's always been the idea, right? But was it possible to get tangible proof and to make a difference and to prevent them from building the weapon? And there's a great line in this episode where they mention it will not be enough to just destroy this weapon. You have to convince this council or a member of the council that the way they're looking about it is wrong. And that's just frankly too much for a captain like Archer, oh, yeah. like not, not to compare Picard and Archer. However, yeah. I feel like a Picard speech would have allowed us to skip a couple of episodes in this season, like a really good Picard speech with a little bit of proof and some uh, Shakespeare isms, I think would have saved yes. a lot of hull damage on yes. NXO one. <laughs> that's all. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Oh man. You're right about that. You're absolutely okay. Internet. If you're out there making memes or, you know, putting stuff together, get uh, one of the damaged NX-01 from season three, put a bunch of band-aids over the holes and just label each band-aid Picard speech. And I think, <laughs> <Love that. laughs> 
I think that will actually work That's really perfect. nice. It works really nice as a t-shirt, I think. Uh, yes, it does. <laughs> well, before we get into uh, much deeper territory on this episode, which we could unpack this thing for a long time. But uh, before we get too much further, let's get to this week's recap. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. UPN Wednesday on an all-new Star Trek Enterprise. A desperate suicide run. I'll be flying the mission. The captain becomes a living torpedo. I don't want you to die. Aimed at the heart of the machine that could destroy Earth. The captain isn't coming back. Star Trek Enterprise. Enterprise approaches Azadi Prime, where the Zindi are constructing their super weapon. Archer sends Trip and Travis on board a Zindi shuttle that they had just captured to investigate the planet, working their way past security. Sneaky, sneaky, sir. They approach the weapon, which is being built underwater. Archer orders Enterprise to destroy a Zindi detection facility on the planet's moon to prevent it from signaling the ship's presence. The shuttle returns with scans of the weapon, and Archer decides to pilot a suicide mission to destroy it. The crew try to talk him out of it, but nah. Archer then finds himself 400 years in the future on board the USS Enterprise J alongside temporal agent Daniels. They are at the battle where the sphere builders, remember we talked about them on our episode 61, are defeated and Daniels gives Archer an initiation medal from a Zindi who had joined Starfleet as a temporal evidence. Back on NX-01, Archer rejects the notion of a human Zindi detente and leaves on the shuttle. He arrives at the superweapon construction site, but finds it gone, and is rapidly captured by the Zindi commander, Dolem. The reptilians begin to interrogate Archer, who then asks to speak to Degra, the primate scientist from our episode 60. Using Daniel's medal, Archer tries to convince Degra that the reptilians cannot be trusted, but Dolem arrives with armed colleagues and takes the primates away. To Paul, in command of the Enterprise, displays signs of an emotional breakdown. She also decides to go negotiate a truce herself and reacts angrily when Trip tries to stop her. An attack from four Zindi ships follows, and the episode concludes with a cliffhanger as Enterprise is left severely damaged. Ooh, that's interesting. So like I said, there is a ton to unpack with this episode right off the bat, mostly because it was the last thing we talked about is getting into the idea of T'Pol and her quote-unquote emotional breakdown, which spoilers for next week's episode we learn is not an emotional breakdown, but a reaction to an addiction. So as if they didn't have enough to talk about already. (laughs) Yes, I, I love the unease of her scenes in this episode because you get the sense that something is wrong and it is beyond the stress of their circumstances. Um, And we just don't quite know what that is. Um, I was also going to mention there are a lot of tropes in Star Trek. Mm. There are like types of episodes. Yep. And I think this episode defies two very well-known tropes of Star Trek. Number one, there is a detection grid that does not have an obvious flaw and they immediately have to come up with a different solution to the problem. How many times has there been some kind of grid around a planet or star system? They're like, well, actually, in that one little section, it's a little weak there. So if we just target that, we'll be able to sneak through. They can't do that here. Yeah. I like that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, also, Starfleet officers don't know how to automatically pilot an alien shuttle, yep. right? Because yep. usually they just hop into the cockpit and they're like, boop, beep, boop, this is where the impulse manifold is, let's go. And they can't <laughs> do that because this was built for bugs. Yep. It was a Zindi insectoid ship. So there we go. I was very pleased to see that in the first third of this episode. Yeah, I think with a lot of, you know, in terms of writing and creating, uh, especially when you're talking about a narrative or any or any any type of story, it's always great to kind of give your characters a problem that is going to be really hard, if not impossible to solve. I think mm-hmm. you'll see a lot of characteristics come to the surface, be it anger, desperation, or unending hope, or whatever it is, that stuff's going to become apparent really quick when they're when their backs are against the wall, as it were. Yeah, that's very true. And I think this episode does a great job of just giving us, you know, the circumstances immediately. We The initial shots of this episode are finally getting to Azadi Prime mm. and seeing like, well, all of the season has led up to this moment of actually finding the location of the weapon. Now what? Yeah. Because again, they're this sort of rinky dink Starfleet vessel. There's just one of them yep. and they're fighting an entire race, yeah. uh, which actually has five races inside of one race. So yeah. it's it, it really is an insurmountable problem. Yeah. I mean, best case scenario, you get a random Vulcan ship to help you. And maybe Jeffrey Combs is on the other side of a planet watching you anyway. So yes. <laughs> Fingers yeah. crossed we get we get a pink skin reference. Yes. <laughs> which which is always good. Um, um yeah, and it's uh you know going into going into this it's kind of well it's almost like an episode of Dukes of Hazard. Well, seems like Archer and the boys have gotten themselves in a real bucket of syrup this time. How are they going to get out? You know, and uh you know this is always i again i come back to like give your characters the unsolvable unsolvable problem and they will either rise or we will watch them burn spectacularly and that will be this and that will be the story of them um i think i think i think scott bacula works best with blood on his face (laughs) that is a very specific and incredibly accurate (laughs) observation you just had because because i I have I think like I have in 10 my... years prior to this, I think he could have played Captain America. Like he's got, he's got the jaw, he's got the stance, the voice. The yeah. whole, he could have been Captain America for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, seeing him here like this, you know, he's got the, he's got the swag of a captain, but hasn't the character has the swag of the captain that hasn't been earned. Yes. And, you know, we're so used to seeing him as Sam quantum leap the whole thing right. that we kind of buy into that if we're not paying attention but you know you know truckers are uh, pretty astute <laughs> we are known yeah. for our attention to detail <laughs> he's it, yeah. the podcaster said to the lego builder <laughs> right um, exactly so <laughs> but so, it's so funny you mentioned that because i wrote in my notes i think it's one of archer's best scenes yeah. when he is being interrogated yeah. his back is clearly against the wall and like i don't know what the character must be thinking mm. but he has to know he is going to die without a significant change in the course of events. He has absolutely no shot of getting out of this situation and nothing like comparing your, you know, six foot two all reptilian counterpart to turtle soup to really just hammer home (laughs) (laughs) your, uh, your real self-righteous indignation about this situation. Uh It's a really great scene, but 
I wouldn't have done it. That, yeah. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Like, that was that was supposed to be Archer's There Are Four Lights. And he was like, you know what sounds good? Soup in San Francisco. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me pull yeah, that gosh. out here. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and, and kind of, again, I think it comes back to, you know, watching, um, watching Trip and Travis in the shuttle going to scope things out. I thought of Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith in Independence Day. Makes me want to think, yes. hey, hey, don't you have a bunch of torpedoes? Maybe want to strap one of those to your ship and just right. handle business while you're there. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. Like, it's such a good idea to, to have that scene of them figuring out the controls. That makes so much logical sense to me. Right. And they're going to risk being able to do this, uh, you know, reconnaissance mission twice seems very risky to me um (laughs) i there are a lot of things that make sense in this episode one of them uh is not the plan in general (laughs) like you're gonna do all the one thing that should make sense doesn't yeah no it does not all of the all of the characters do and say the right things uh you know the the dominoes fall in a very you know thoughtful and logical way but at one point you don't have malcolm reed your tactical expert say hey guys um (laughs) the ship has weapons and we can like put a guidance system on it so you could just kind of do it right then if you want i don't know (laughs) it's up to you (laughs) it's fine oh yeah it's uh but you know what you're absolutely right i do think between the plan not making sense. I, th- I think this episode really does hinge on a couple of performances. As we mentioned, uh, Scott Bakula, you know, really, really hit it. I think, I think the last, I think the last performance of his, of this caliber was in the episode detained uh, mm. where he is across from his old quantum leap co-star Dean Stockwell. Yep. And they are just, at each other's throats and it's so in terms of acting it's so delicious to just watch them just just oh that is a great episode such a great episode anyway um but yeah in in terms of in terms of uh Jolene Blalock here again as to Paul I think I, I I don't know I I just really wish the writer's room hadn't treated her like the punching bag it seems like she got the raw deal she got every raw deal <laughs> that came along through that writer's room of just like oh we're going to talk about this ah, let's just have it happen to DePaul <laughs> and uh I don't know if that was out of well she's an alien I, I really don't want to think that it, that was the thought of like well she's a woman we can do that to her like I really don't right. want to think that I really want to think better of the writer's room but Uh, all evidence to the contrary (laughs) right no and like how much more sense would it make for trip with intimate knowledge of engineering and probably chemical reactions to figure out that you could get high off of trellium also he has the most motivation to do so having just lost his sister yes having spent like having spent months in this expanse with nearly no answers and then that sets up to Paul for this great redemption arc for finally being able to have the crew's trust to take the captain's chair to not detonate half of the ship as as we know what happens, you know, at the end of this episode. Right. Like if you flip the two circumstances of those characters, so many of their scenes have a much better 
it just feels more natural to the characters to me. Yeah. Like Trip being the cool headed one as first officer after Archer leaves the ship was like a nice character moment. It just didn't feel like it made sense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I, I've wondered about the structure of the command. Well, certainly the command structure within the enterprise, within the NXO one of, okay, who's second in command. Is it to Paul? Cause she's not actually part of Starfleet. Like, is it trip? Cause he's your engineer so he's not usually on the bridge i I mean (laughs) right they and if i'm remembering they added an engineering duty station like opposite from hoshi's communication station just so trip could be on the bridge for certain scenes yeah and i think that was in season three i don't remember seeing that in the first couple seasons right um and i know that there was supposed to be a big emotional payoff for archer earlier in the show sort of being willing to hand over the keys to NX01 to T'Pol in case of an emergency. Yeah. Like to your point, really doesn't make sense in the like universe that they live in. Yeah. <laughs> like she's part of the Vulcan Science Academy. There's absolutely no love loss between Archer and Vulcans in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it there are a couple really big missed opportunities in this season. And I feel like the relationship between Trip and T'Pol is one of them that mm-hmm you could even have them end up at the same place that they ended up in season four and have it, you know, take a more natural course, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right about that. Um, So uh, one more thing to discuss before moving on is we get a glimpse of the enterprise J and uh, we, we mentioned, I mentioned this a little bit and we talked a little bit before we started rolling about the, uh, you know, as we are going through in chronological order, this is the first instance of seeing something from enterprise, quote unquote, enterprises future. Yeah. Um, you being uh, the Lego builder and uh, an artisan, I am going to go with artisan. <laughs> I appreciate um, that. <laughs> how do you feel about not only its inclusion here with uh, temporal agent Daniels, um, you know, played again, wonderfully by Matt Winston. Um, How do we feel about seeing this within the narrative, even as it relates to things yet to come? And uh, how do you feel about the design of the Enterprise J? Seeing as how to the, at at this point in actual history, this is the only glimpse we get of the J. (laughs) Yeah. um, Really great question. So first I love Daniels. I, I am a huge fan of the temporal cold war timeline. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. even knowing that the scene was coming in this episode, it was so jarring to me to see Archer step into a completely different room when he was supposed to be going up to the bridge in the, in the turbo lift. Yep. Um, And I thought, Daniels came in at the perfect time and showed him something really interesting. And that is we have Zindi serving aboard Enterprise J. And if you're not careful, the sphere builders are going to be expanding. Like I think he said like 50,000 light years, which is nearly the size of the Milky Way. um, If, if history is not changed and you can't die because of the Federation. And I love that we get that, um, quick glimpse of Archer's ears perking up at Federation again, because he knows that that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and the design of the J I really like because it's a, it is the straightest line between NX-01 and a different enterprise. Because mm-hmm. if, if we take the perspective that you're thinking of, which is we haven't seen any other enterprise ship 
you know, we don't know the original series and next gen exists. Right. That's a really logical evolution from NX01 to J because you don't have the secondary engineering hull. Yep. And it clearly has gotten bigger, sleeker, and looks more, just looks more futuristic. Mm-hmm. It gets interesting when you consider the rest of the Enterprise legacy and then look at Enterprise J. I feel like the lineage breaks down a little bit there. Um, and you also have a really interesting um, issue with scale, like how truly how big is that Enterprise J? Yeah. Um, which I think you have some interesting notes on uh, later in the show um, about the size of the ship. But all in all, I love the scene. The Enterprise J is not one of my favorites, and it's ended up on my sort of digital cutting room floor for Lego models. Oh. Um, <laughs> because, and the only reason is, I think I'm waiting to get an alternate history bundle. So I take all of my ships and I bundle them into these little collections because they're, yeah. you know, it's much more cost effective to order pieces for multiple ships than just one at a time. Of course. And so they have sort of logical, like, you know, Kelvin timeline, Enterprise, DS9 and Voyager, ships of the line, um, which includes like the Prometheus class, which we actually see a glimpse of in this episode, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I would like to do an alternate history timeline bundle where you've got like the Enterprise D from All Good Things. You've got the Enterprise J, uh, maybe even a mirror universe ship or something just to show that there are these interesting variations. Um, but again, I... I think Daniels came in at a really interesting time and showed Archer what we know to be true of the Federation. And that is it's inclusive. It is trying to defend um, the freedom and literal and figurative space of species. Right. And um, it gives us a really interesting piece of information. And that is the sphere builders can look not just back and forth through time, but through different timelines. And in this pop culture world right now of multiverses, uh, Star Trek did it first, which is true for a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think to me, watching the episode, even knowing how all this ends, it reinforced that that is such a critical moment for season three, where you start to piece together, okay, we have sphere builders who think this way. We have these reptilians who appear to be sort of the most um, intense um, you know, sect of the Zindi race. Mm. And you have all of these elements that are finally starting to come together. Um, and I think that it, that seed of doubt that is planted in audiences for what the sphere builders intentions are is the same seed of doubt that's planted in Degra by the end of this episode. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Well, uh, you know, for, everything that goes right, you know, there's definitely uh, some stuff that maybe got missed and definitely uh, some folks who are at fault here. So let's get to our section that we've lovingly titled, who do we blame? Uh, (laughs) The story was done by Berman and Braga. Of course, they've been, uh, they've been helming this ship uh, ever since it left space dock with broken bow. The last episode that they specifically worked on was season three, episode 15 Harbinger, along with, Manny Cotto, who did the story and the teleplay for this, uh, we discussed um, Harbinger with a writer-illustrator of Airship Enterprise, Brian Denham, on episode 61. 
And this episode was directed by Alan Croker, whose last work was season three, episode one, The Zindi, uh, which we discussed with Canadian trekker Sophia from the Where's Beverly podcast on episode 46. That's been some time ago. And in the guest stars, we've got, we've already mentioned Mr. Matt Winston as Temporal Agent Daniels and a lot of familiar faces that we've seen throughout season three. Randy Oglesby as Degra, Scott McDonald as Commander Dullum, the unkillable Tucker Smallwood as the Zindi Primate Counselor, Rick Worthy as Janar, and Christopher Goodman as Thalen. The, uh, we mentioned, uh, some extra details about the Enterprise J. For those of you who are curious, the Enterprise J was designed by Doug Drexler, who drew the first design only two days prior to the production meeting for this episode. I'm always fascinated when people turn in a design or a script in the 11th hour of just how did you make this happen? It's a fairly important design as well. Like it's not, it's not like a random alien shuttle. It is a new enterprise, which that's kind of amazing. Oh yeah, absolutely. The, uh, the CG model for this uh, was created in just a few hours and Drexler imagined that the vessel was so large that there would be universities and entire parks on board. Uh, I think we actually kind of get some of that brought to fruition, uh, when Discovery rejoins Starfleet in season three, four, we see one mm-hmm. that's there's a ship with a rainforest and, you know, uh, all, all these very, very creative, very fascinating designs on new Starfleet ships. Um, one of the elements incorporated into the version seen on screen was a reduction in the size of the warp nacelle supports. As Drexler said that he did not like they had that they had increased in size uh so a couple things about drexler he began his career working for makeup artist dick smith on such films as tony scott's the hunger in 1983 and john carpenter's starman in 1984 and he has also contributed makeup effects to warren Beatty's dick tracy in 1990 which earned him a british academy award the saturn award and an oscar for his work on characters such as Big Boy Caprice, played by Al Pacino, and Mumbles, played by Dustin Hoffman. Some legendary actors there. Um, So we've been examining this stuff uh, for, you know, better part of a year and a half as we've been working our way slowly through Enterprise. But the big question, the question that we are asking every week is, is this essential viewing? Now, I think, uh, you know, as we've been talking with Enterprise being the first chapter of this of this narrative, and this kind of being the culmination of a buildup for the better part of at least one season, and characters we've been following since for three seasons now, um, I think I have an idea of your answer. Uh, but what what do you think? What do you think? Is this is if somebody's watching Star Trek for the very first time, is this episode? one they can't miss because this starts off a really solid group of episodes these like the next seven and you've got a couple at the beginning of season four that are sort of directly the conclusion to the zindi arc i think yes i could make an argument that you start with this one for season three that you could sprinkle in a couple from earlier in the season and then begin this uh begin begin with this episode for your your final journey into the what happens with the Zindi. Mm-hmm. And to me, 
it's a payoff of a lot of big ideas that come up. I think you get a great speech from Archer about why we need to go back to being explorers, which is a really key Star Trek idea. Um, you have some great visuals uh, when they're underwater looking at the weapon and then yes. that pan up and the weapon is gone is still just kind of a, a gut punch. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of strategic payoff to um, Archer and Degra and Stratagem. He gets to use some of that offhand knowledge to his advantage. Yeah. We get some payoff to uh, Daniel's relationship with Archer and helping, you know, get that artifact into the right hands to try to change some minds. Um, and for as much action as this episode packs in, I think it reinforces the importance of some Star Trek ideals. And it also ends absolutely brutally with a very almost Star Trek Beyond-esque scene of the Enterprise just getting ripped to shreds. Um, And to me, leaves me wanting to see what comes next because our captain is captured, our ship is in shambles. That was a lot of alliteration accidentally. Um, (laughs) And And you know what? As a fan of alliteration, well done. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, And that's where you know, to, to start our heroes in such a negative spot leading into, you know, they have to save the world. We know that it's just a matter of how to start them so far down in this hole and to watch them climb up, I think is really would be a satisfying way to watch Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've spoken a couple of times as we've been examining, you know, the essential watch list, um, that I'm slowly putting together. Um, with this, you know, in looking at the franchise as a whole, which is usually how we examine this question, um, I'm always quick to say, but if you're, exa- this might not fit in the franchise as a whole, but if you're looking at the Trip and Paul relationship, or as I, I don't, I don't call them, uh, I think there was a, um, tr- uh, I think the, the celebrity name for them was Tripal. Tripal. Yeah, that would make sense. Tripal. I was trying to do it in my head while you were thinking about it. And I, they're way too short and too similar. I've been referring to, to them make as, sense. I've been referring to them as to pucker. So <laughs> that's my celebrity name. I think I all that. other celebrity names for them should be canceled. Yeah. <laughs> just, let's just call them to pucker. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, looking at some of those things, I think if you're a fan of to pucker and, or if you're a fan of archer's journey, um, mm-hmm what I've called the path of the arrow. Um, uh, also, you know, looking at enterprise self-contained is definitely, it is definitely a can't miss um, because we see this is since the season two finale, this is what he's been trying to get to. He's been yes. trying to get FaceTime with the Zindi council. And this is kind of, this is the first chance that he's really had to get in front of most of them at right. this point in any sort of capacity of introduction or any hope for diplomacy. So I think this is just what you said. It is, it is crucial. It is a crucial episode on many fronts. Yeah. Um, and also I'm, I'm a big Star Trek soundtrack fan. Ah. Um, college and I really am passionate about what, Star Trek scores have done to help inform these stories. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a very slight tonal shift in the soundtrack of this episode from the first scene mm-hmm. that 
suggests a darker tone that the villains might have an upper hand. They're bringing back some motifs from um, some of the earlier Zindi episodes. And they also do a couple of music dropouts in really emotionally important scenes, like when Archer decides to take out the outpost. Um, a couple of the moments before Enterprise is attacked when you get that really great score to end the episode. Yeah. Um, and I think they started getting in my mind, a little bit more modern and less 90s Trek with the music. Mm -hmm. And that continues into season four. Um, and I think that that's another good reason to watch the episode because the music is just real good. Yeah, the uh, you know, you're absolutely right. First, um, two more things and then we'll start wrapping this up is, uh, first of all, that scene where he does make the order to fire on the on the 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 outpost. I it's such a heavy scene. It's very yeah. well played. I think they could have they could have cranked it just a little bit more. I don't I don't know that they got all the emotional resonance. Um, I I agree. I think there's a shot of Archer where his back is turned, and mm -hmm. that struck me as off putting because I struggled to remember a scene where a captain's back is to the audience for very long because mm -hmm. that's not it's not particularly heroic. It's sort of, there's a, a shame in that, in the way that that was blocked. Yeah. Um, and I also think, you know, to your point of ratcheting it up, they could have cut to the Zindi and the outpost, you know, seeing the blip on their screen of the enterprise coming into view and then help the audience could have pieced together what that would have meant. Um, and maybe that would have helped bring up the tension a little bit, but it's like yeah. in the grand scheme of things are three Zindi, you know, is that going to stop Archer and crew on their journey? No, but like a Starfleet crew just openly killing three members of an alien race yeah. is that it, oh man, it is brutal to watch. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is of all the wild Westness uh, uh, that yes. Ar that Archer has engaged in and condoned. This is the most of just, whoa. Yeah. It, I, I, I could real, not, man. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I could not help but think like, you know, Picard would have found a way to inverse a gravimetric beam and take the asteroid off its orbit. And, you know, yeah. like th there had to have been a scientific way, you know, to prevent that signal from going out to, to Commander Dolom. But, you know, yeah. that's, you know, if we're being honest, that is Archer's character. He would prefer to do the morally most challenging thing that he does struggle with. Yeah. But it is sort of the path of least resistance. Yeah. No half, certainly no half measures. No, it, exactly. He, he is an all or nothing guy for sure. The last yeah. thing I wanted to mention was, is there anything more eerie than seeing a, sh a ship, especially an enterprise ship lose power and start drifting off of its axis? It is so I disturbing to me to see that yes <laughs> that's yes, supposed I, to happen <laughs> no i totally agree i thought i had that exact same thought there's a shot of a, a a phaser hit onto the top of the hull and you see crew members get ejected into space always really sort oh. of disturbing oh, and yes. then i was really struggling to remember how many times in star trek engineering has been evacuated like that's when you know the ship has hit the fan when they have to, you know, they've got the exploding rocks, which is another Star Trek trope that's hilarious to me. Why are there rocks hidden in bulkheads? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, 
the enterprise did some great stunt work and you can see that in those engineering scenes and it just really hammers home how screwed they appear to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, you're right. That, that listing shot is just don't something is very wrong about that. Oh yeah. It's just, that's just not supposed to be. And uh, yeah, just that, Oh, that sinking feel. And again, going back to, yeah, the crew members getting sucked out. And I think in terms of, even uh, narrative aside, the design in that 2009 J.J. Abrams, where we see like the camera is next to that crew member and that yes. um, that uh, that one missile hit the Enterprise and they hold on for a second and then are sucked out. And not only are they sucked out, the sound cuts off. Yes. And you're just like, oh, yeah. And, and then the, the everybody remembered the alien the alien movie poster of like, oh, that's right. In space, no one can no hear one you can scream. hear you scream. <laughs> like, oh, that is so terrifying. That is so yeah. terrifying. And I seeing that here in Enterprise just brought all of that just rushing back. It was just like, oh, this is this is a nightmare. This is yes. awful. Well, and I, you know, I've gone on record multiple times throughout uh, our journey through Enterprise and saying so many of these episodes could be tweaked just slightly and would make a perfect horror film. Oh yeah. And yes, this would be sort of, you know, with the damage that happens and to Paul's addiction and Archer deciding to just kill people like, Oh, this is the horror movie where we were initially rooting for the good guys. And now it turns out they're not the good guys so much anymore. Right. and it and it calls to question it calls to question the history of Starfleet. Like later down the line, I mean, we see yeah, spoilers, everybody, for a show that's twenty years old. Um, we see uh, Will Riker go into the holodeck and kind of consult with the crew of the NXO one and getting advice. But is that everyone's opinion of the crew of the NXO one, or are they viewed as a l- little more than pirates? who did things for the greater good, but at the end of the day, they did some stuff that was not so great, much like the United States government did in the war on terror, much like we, much like we did in world war two. A lot of people like to focus on captain America, punching out Hitler. Everybody forgot about the detention camps. Like, right. We didn't come out of that. So squeaky clean either. Like, (laughs) no. And it, you know, (laughs) The Star Trek that we see in the original series feels so far removed from the decision-making style of Archer and mm. the crew of the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And so it reminds me that a hundred years is a really long time yeah. um, and that there is plenty of opportunities to learn from past mistakes, um, mm-hmm. both in our real political environment and in the fictional Star Trek universe. Yeah. Um, partially fictional sometimes it feels a little bit too real um (laughs) um, but no i i think that's a that's a really good thing to hammer home um because archer has continued to show over the course of the series that his convictions and his morality has like a very clear box that they fit in Mm. he's just willing to move that box probably a lot more than our other captains that we've seen um and even from a production standpoint if TNG had had the ability to do it, do you think they would have shown somebody being blown out an airlock? You know, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. That, that would just be my guess. Um, and the, the sort of 
changing sensationalist landscape of television, mm-hmm. um, I think informed those story choices and those visual choices to sort of let you know that like, you know, the showrunners see pop culture changing and they're willing to change their show to better reflect what people want to see. And that is the real life visceral consequences of their actions, even if it takes place on a spaceship in the future in a completely unrelated situation. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Well, uh, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, just deep diving with me on your thoughts about this about this period of Star Trek that people easily dismiss. And yeah. honestly, I I really, I really like it. I'm, I'm dangerously close to saying I love it. <laughs> dangerously <laughs> close. Do you yes, have a, any final thoughts about this episode, about this season, about Enterprise as a whole, about the franchise as a whole, about your experience on this podcast? <laughs> Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I've absolutely loved this. You are somebody I could easily talk about Star Trek with for hours and hours. My pleasure. Um, My pleasure. So very, very easy uh, discussions. Um, I think I I love Star Trek. I think uh, with Strange New Worlds having just premiered not that long ago, it's reignited um, my firmly held belief that Star Trek is best told in... um, predominantly episodic formats Mm, mm. um and that's not to say i don't like discovery because i do and i also like picard but it doesn't feel quite like star trek and being able to go back and revisit enterprise in a completely different era of television of star trek production and it feel more like what i'm seeing modern trek look like i think that felt really good yeah um and i also like people need to not sleep on enterprise like it's a, it can be a really good show and it has really great moments. And I think the visual effects hold up, um, the pacing of the shows hold up. Um, and I'm trying to set as much of my childhood biases aside, but I do think it's an excellent show. And for my money, because it's Star Trek and I love Star Trek, I love Enterprise. Like that's just, that's my most basic equation for this. Like yeah. um, I'm a, I'm a huge nerd as uh, should be evident at the end of this podcast. And I wanted a random Star Trek generator. So I made an Excel spreadsheet where I can push a button and it'll it'll like pop out a random episode for me to watch. Nice. And I, I can select which series I want to choose from. And Enterprise, I always include in that because I'm always willing to watch an Enterprise episode. And that, that to me is my true review of the show. Oh, that's so, that's so great. Well, I got to ask you one more question only because I think it's the only area of enterprise we haven't discussed yet. Yes. Do you, Chris Ames, have faith of the heart? (laughs) Um, I do, Todd. I do. Because I know where my heart will take me. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. I got to, I got to say, uh, you know, just, just quickly, I'm a fan of season one and two faith of the heart. Now I've, I've encountered some folks who are a fan of three and four faith of the heart. Where do you fall? Which camp do you fall? I'm, I'm going to say something embarrassing. And that is every time I watched this show when I was a kid, I would sing the entire theme song as it was on live television. So (laughs) I like it. I also appreciate the continuing tradition of adding unnecessary drums to a Star Trek theme in the middle of the series run, just like Deep Space Nine. 
really yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's, yeah. that's so great. And, and it's wonderful to hear that you have that uh, affinity for, for the theme song way back yes. when. Oh yep. man. Well, next week we will be joined by independent Trek pin designer and merchant Captain Dan O'Connor to discuss Enterprise Season 3, Episode 19, Damage, which of course is available exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Chris, let's talk about mini Star Trek MOCs. Do you call them mocks or do you call them MOCs? I want to make I sure. Call I, mocks. Mocks. I call them mocks. Let, yep. Let's talk about this. So we, we mentioned it a little bit at the beginning, but I want to give people just the overview and let people know uh, you can buy these directly from yes. you. And like, I, I don't know that I hammered it home enough that you're not just getting a ship. You also craft a stand with a plate that says the details. Of it. I mean, these would be on display in Picard's ready room. They absolutely oh, would. Thank you. They absolutely would. That's the highest compliment you could bestow upon me. And I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> absolute so, truth. So it's a collection of, 43 of the most famous ships across Star Trek, um, predominantly Starfleet. I do have a couple Cleon, a couple Romulan vessels. It is an ever expanding collection. I try to do them in chunks of, you know, like five to seven, um, create some new designs. Um, they are bundled, like I said before. So they're sort of grouped in a very logical format um, and priced accordingly. So you can buy all of the enterprises uh, for like less than 12 bucks. And so what comes with the ships are not pieces. So the interesting part about this project has been figuring out a best way to, to, to get these ships delivered to consumers. And so it's a digital download for my website. It happens instantaneously. You get step-by-step -step instructions that look exactly like a, a Lego set instructions. You get a parts list uh, in an Excel format that you can view offline. You get an XML parts list, which is what allows you to upload the pieces of that ship or of the multiple ships that you've purchased onto a website called BrickLink. And BrickLink is a marketplace for pieces, sets, figures, everything you could want from the Lego universe. And basically you upload this list of pieces like a music playlist. Yeah. And then it connects you automatically through its algorithm to any seller in, in a all of the countries that support BrickLink, um, you can get them in used condition, new condition, whatever, and it allows you to purchase exactly the pieces uh, that you need. And you also get the custom uh, ship label that features the LCARS interface um, in the area in the era that that ship uh, served. And yeah, that's pretty much it. I I strive to make these the most accurate and detailed that I could at this scale, and so. Um, you know, they, they're not necessarily ready for play. I call them ready for swooshing. You can pick them up, you can swoosh them. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, they look good in uh, a home, an office, a ready room, wherever you, you want to display them. Very cool. And where can people, uh, reach you at your website or on social media? So minitrekmocks.com is my website. So that's minitrekmocs.com. That is also my Twitter handle, or I'm sorry, my Instagram handle. Um, so I'm on my website and Instagram. Um, I try to post some ship edits, make the ships look pretty, some behind the scenes facts about how they were built. And those are the places you can find me. 
and I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials from all of us at the Computer Resume Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you in Ted Forward. rate, review, and share on all your favorite platforms. Feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computerresumepodcasts at gmail.com or at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Computer Resume podcast was created and produced by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Our logo was designed by Will Martin and Justin Bishop. The opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop, and our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn, and the voice of Computer Resume Podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We probably got some phasers and shuttle pods, and we're going to find a brand new race. Actually, need to take a time out. I actually need to go to the bathroom right quick. <laughs> can, can yeah, you, can you give no, me I'm gonna, a few minutes? I'll stretch my legs. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> okay, I apologize. Sorry about that. Hello. <laughs> hey, I know what. Let's do before we record. Let's go get Taco Please. Bell. <laughs> Love that. I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> all right, you ready to jump back in? Yes. All right. <clears throat> Yeah, I feel like it was very, you know, um, Max, we've said it before, no squeaky toys during the podcast. <laughs> go, go sit on the couch. Good boy. You're a very good boy. Love that. <laughs> he, he wants to be on the mic so much and we have to continuously tell him no. It's you're going to have to, you're going to have to get him a dummy pet mic. That he just can interact with. <laughs> and you're actually, like, no, it's hooked up. It's actually it's a really good up. idea. Yeah. Um. <laughs> How's that for a slice of fried gold?